The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of The Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. An up week for markets, but it's still kind of squirrely out there. Oil is down, commodities are down, the VIX hanging below 30. We have a gas tax holiday announced and other bad ideas coming your way. And our guest today, Fed insider Danielle DiMartino Booth from Quill Intelligence. All this and much more on episode number 772 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. And a very good day to you. Welcome to the latter part of June. You know, we're getting into the last week of June. That means that we have things like, well, uh, tape painting. We have things like uh, looking at the end of the quarter, end of the month. And that oftentimes means that there's going to be a significant amount of movement in the markets. And that is because there's a lot of jockeying for position. In particular, this week, on Friday the 24th, just a couple of days ago, we had one of the biggest rebalances, the reconstitution of the Russell indices. And what happens there is some things have moved in and some things have moved out. And that caused a great deal of movement for the markets on Friday, on top of what we saw this week, which was a pretty powerful up week for a lot of names. And we're going to get to that idea of capitulation, which I'm also going to talk to with our guest. Hey there, I'm Andrew Horowitz. I am the host of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. I'm also the co-host of DH Unplugged. Every Tuesday, John C. Dvorak and I get together and we talk about, I'll call it the lighter side of finance. We talk about a better understanding of what's really going on and how to understand and take apart, put back together what's actually being said. And John does a great job of providing a, a good sounding board as well as information source and a historical perspective of what's happening. So if you're not yet hooked on DH Unplugged. Make sure if you're on your phone right now, if you're on your computer, push that subscribe button wherever you are to make sure you get that and to keep the Disciplined Investor podcast close because the, the, the information that we have here is, I think, pretty good. You can also follow me on Twitter, Andrew Horowitz, and that's a place that you want to do. And by the way, if you're interested in what I do in the world of food, from the things that I cook to the parties that I attend, to the food I eat, you need to go on Insta and follow me on, get this, Dad Bod Food Blog. Dad Bod, which is what I have, Food Blog, which is what my kids made up for me. So here we are in the end of June, and it has been a rough ride throughout the year so far. A lot of people are thinking about, well, maybe uh, this rally I'm going to give up on because every other rally that we've seen has been something that you just want to, you know, not deal with, right? It's been up a couple of days and then taking another leg lower, up a couple of days, taking another leg lower. And if you look at the patterns that we're seeing right now, we have these oversold levels that have come into play very often. And then a, a pretty nice rebound, a few percent, and then it just rolls right over. This week, we saw a very powerful rebound again from oversold levels. It would, I don't care if you want to look at RSI, you want to look at 
the Spearman. You want to look at McClellan. You want to look at some of the things that we put out. I did put a marker out for the KRI on Twitter, which is why you want to follow me. Just a few days before, they said, you know, we're looking like we're getting towards oversold levels right here. And that is pretty interesting because what you want to pay attention to in these kind of market conditions are the opportunities for rallies inside of this bear market. And one of those is actually going to be the start of a consolidation and the start of moving towards away from moving away from this bear market condition. We don't know which one is going to be. So you got to pay attention and you got to be involved to a point, maybe uh, with some stops on your positions, or maybe if you're looking to be in it for the long haul, what you do is you start accumulating, holding your nose to a bit on some names and then looking for those times that maybe the dip happens up to the level of support and you start buying in more. And we saw, for example, last week, a few names, right? We saw that getting towards the pandemic lows, companies like Carnival Cruise Lines, Norwegian Cruise Lines, Royal Caribbean. I looked at the charts and I said, oh my. I looked at their debt load. I said, oh my. <laughs> I looked at what was going on and thinking, you know, this pandemic thing and the concern about COVID may not release for a while. And on top of that, we have a situation where we have um, diesel fuel prices that are off the hook. A lot of things are really going wrong for these names. And I said, wait a second, maybe something can go right. I don't know what that's going to be necessarily because everybody is of the belief of the same thing. Everybody is on the same side of the boat. Everybody is thinking, you know, we have inflation that's going to be crazy. We have the fact that that's going to curtail vacation and consumer discretionary travel expenditures. We have diesel prices that are just elevated to a point that's breaking the back of these companies. Plus, they're buying food. How can the cruise lines do anything that is going to be beneficial to them. There's so many things that are wrong. But imagine just for a minute, which we talked about in our second level thinking discussion last week. Imagine for a second if you have a situation where diesel prices start coming down for whatever reason. This is an exercise in imagination. And again, this is what we talked about last week about second level thinking of what could actually go right or what could go wrong, depending on what side of the discussion you're on. And think about, where are we? Where are we today? And where could we be tomorrow? So if we're in a situation that there are changes, like, for example, on Friday, we saw a better-than-expected number when it came to new home sales. By a long shot, we also saw the University of Michigan come out with a worse expectation of current conditions. But if you think about what that meant was that consumers will back off. In the face of what we're seeing already with commodities dropping down so significantly, what happened? Well, embedded in that University of Michigan number was also the five-year inflation expectation number, which the Fed does look at, and that's dropped. And markets took off. Now, there's good news, bad news, bad news, good news involved in that. If the consumers are not so happy, that's not so good for the condition of spending in the future. However, we would assume that that was the case. The economy was slow. If the economy slows, well, we have uh, uh, commodities and other prices come down. If that happens, the Fed will just lay off a little bit. We had, oh, what are we going to call him? Bulldog Bullard. Bulldog Bullard is my new name for this guy, right? 
Bullard is the one that's coming out, usually on Fridays, with his bad news scenario. And in, in this Friday, was no different that the Fed will need to continue rate, continue to stamp out this dirty inflation thing, which is a problem. There's no question about that. But let's not get hysterical about it for a minute. And then on top of it, he sees 3.5% by the end of this year. 3.5% by the end of 2022. We're talking about increase of at least 50 basis point every single meeting through the end of the year. Now, is that going to happen? Maybe. Maybe. But what if the fact that they're already slowing down on and, and reversing their bonds buying, which we're going to talk about with our guest today, what if uh, the fact that this all working? What if it's all working? So now what we have is a situation where we are settling into a, a bear market contra trend rally right now and questioning what does this mean? Because we've been trained that, you know what, it always goes down now, just like we were trained that it always goes up a year and a half ago. A year and a half ago, the training was by the dip, right? Two and a half years ago, we had that idiot David Portnoy talking about stonks never going down. And let me tell you, I say that because what he did was create a bit of euphoria with gamblers, turning their attention on stocks rather than sports. And we saw the things that happened. And if you were one of the lucky ones to get in and follow them around in the beginning, but get the hell out really quickly, that's great. But if you were the unlucky ones, you really got your head handed to you. No wonder he's no longer doing the Dave Daily Dave show. He lost a boatload of money. He'll tell you. Because he was reckless. Didn't follow rules. Played it like it was a game. Had no respect for his money. And having no respect for your money will have the, 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 the effect of your, your money have no respect for you. You're no, there's no question about that. So here we are in a situation where we have something that we're not necessarily believing in. I'm with you. There's no question that we have to be skeptical at this point. But when we string together all the information that we are seeing, the FedEx numbers better than expected and doing a lot to change the unprofitable side of their business and their earnings coming out looking much better. And when we see the how the, the home builders, right? We saw Lennar come out. We saw KB Homes come out. We actually hold KB Homes. Beautiful move to the upside, increasing their uh, dividend and, and, and a lot of companies continuing with their buybacks. And, and now we're seeing oil start to run down a bit in the face of what we know to be a very difficult situation in, in Ukraine and Russia and in that region and all of the possibilities of reopening, if then maybe possibly, who knows, in the face of the rest of the world doing better. But, of course, China having some problems. Supply chains doing a bit better, finding that we can get product a lot easier in some areas. And moving away from some of the, the immediate concerns that we saw in, in food prices. Now, a lot of this may be temporary. I'll give you that. And that's why we need to be on our toes. But right now, it's a very interesting crossroads that we're at where the Fed, with their boots stuck firmly on the throat 
of the markets. And everybody talking about capitulation, which I've talked about to death. The idea that these talking heads, and you know what I mean by when I say talking heads, right? You know the subtext of that, right? And what, what I think about what their benefit is to anybody. <laughs> the talking heads saying that we have to have capitulation or a rally. Well, that's great if we're talking about just the market itself. But what about the moves that we've seen from companies in tech, in consumer discretionary, over the last few weeks that are starting to turn up in 20 and 30% returns in certain areas? Now, yes, they were sold off to a point that they were down 80%, but maybe those were the capitulatory moves in those individual names. The fact is that when you have people that are talking about equities and then they really focus in primarily on the markets and not recognizing that it is a, a, a stock market, but it's also a market of stocks that you could have really done incredibly well being only in energy and energy services related companies this year you would have had one of the best years ever. But no, we all look at what the indices say. And those indices are important to track, but recognize, you know, if you're down 20% and the indices are down 25, well, is that good? Maybe. Maybe not. The fact is that if you have a full bucket of, porf of your portfolio in equities, 80, 90, 100% of your portfolio is in equities and you're down 20% this year, that is a modern-day miracle. You should be down close to 30%, 40%. Because many of these stocks across the entire level of the uh, equity universe, the market universe, are down dramatically. And the question is, what are you going to do it on the backside? There are some great names still out there that have been just thrown out with the baby, with the bathwater, like a Crocs. Something that we're looking at, very interesting. Still, it's a falling knife right now if you want to get involved in it, but there are some opportunities that we're seeing right now that are very interesting. The names that we have that are in our uh, portfolios, we're pretty confident of. And the change that we're making right now with the bonds over the next few weeks is, I think, going to be very telling. All right, we're going to end right there. Let's 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 start talking about what our guest is all about. How's that? And that's Danielle DiMartino Booth, who's the founder and CEO of Quill Intelligence. And she created this to set out to uh, do basically a research revolution, redefining how markets and uh, the information is conceived and delivered. She's the author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. And prior to forming her own company, Quill, she spent nine years at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, where she served as advisor to President Richard Fisher throughout the uh, entire financial crisis. So let's get right down to the discussion. Hey, Danielle, how are you? I am doing great. How are you? Uh, it's a little little toasty here in Texas, but other than that, doing That's great. That's good. It's, be it's better than the alternatives, you know, down in Florida 
Well, you also have the humidity we have here, right? You have a lot of humidity in the summertime? Dallas is deceiving because it is the most humid city. In fact, a few years ago, worthless anecdote, but a few years ago, it was determined that Dallas was more humid than New Orleans or Houston. And New Orleans actually got their panties in a wad, to use a technical term, because they were like, no, 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 we own the humidity. And I'm like, okay. And Houston's <laughs> really known for the humidity, too, like, like un unbearable yep, you know, no, it's, humidity uh, in the summer. Dallas, when it's 100 degrees like it is right now and humid, you might as well be in Dante's ninth circle. <laughs> well, we're kind of right there with what's going on with uh, the markets. We have an oppressive blanket over the top of anything that seems to be possibly uh, positive, and it continues to be a problem. I want to talk to you about a variety of things, but I thought I would just – I'm going to start off with a very general open-ended que uh, question and, and just ask you to, to talk about it a little bit. Um, your thoughts about what's going on right now from the aspect of, you know, what you do with your research and what you're working on most right now. I find that a lot of times it's, it's, it's interesting to look at what you're talking about all the time, what I'm, what I'm working on, what I'm writing about all the time to think about, well, that is obviously something important right now. How does that look for you? Uh, right now, uh, if I had to describe what the day-to-day -day is at Quill Intelligence, we, we publish eight times a week, uh, is I'm on the defensive. I, I am, I'm constantly defending our position that the United States has entered recession. And it, 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 I feel like that, I feel like that the, the Greek mythological character that had to push the, the boulder up the mountain every day, uh, because there is the, the, the conviction among cell site analysts that we absolutely cannot have this recession thing begin until 2023 or 2024 based on their models and the models of their future bonuses. Um, so it's, but, but that's what I, that's what I'm doing these days and it's getting easier and easier. The boulder is getting smaller, but who cares? Seriously, when I say that, and I'm not saying about who cares about your opinion, that's not what I'm saying. Who cares if we label it right now, three weeks from now, two weeks ago, or a year from now, if we're in a recession, if it looks, smells, tastes, and acts like a recession in various parts, because it's, you know, the culmination, what is a recession too? That's the other question, right? Different, different uh, definitions. But it's like, is it so important that we put the word, it's a bear market now? versus everything seems to be a bear market, so therefore it is. I, you know what? I, I think that labeling right now is really important. And I completely empathize with what you're saying. Uh, I mean, it's semantics are, they're, they're worthless. But I think at this juncture, we have to remember that Jay Powell made comments in 2018, 2019, I can't remember exactly when, I think it was 2019 that it was conceivable that if monetary policy was was in the it was in the right position was in the right place that the business cycle could could be eradicated. Oh, oh, don't oh. You want yeah. you want to go there, huh? I'm just I'm I'm just saying that that until this because the the, the bond market is is cluing in. And that's why we're seeing long rates come down. The bond market yeah. is like, oh, Okay, I, this is capitulation. We're in recession, but the stock market's not going to believe it until they're told we're in recession. And it's just—it's a different mindset because high valuations have to be justified at the levels that they're at, despite how much stocks have come down. 
And that's what nobody, that's why nobody wants to actually recognize the, 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 the recession word. It's because then you have to say, okay, if we've been in recession since January the 1st, theoretically, and we're, we're talking about, you know, you're going to have to have the most star spangled last few days of the month of June for it to not be the case right mm -hmm. now, mathematically. Yep. Yep. So if, if recession started January the 1st and your median decline in your S&P is 24% mm -hmm. in the post-war period, mm -hmm. and right now the S&P is off by 24%. Yeah. So if we are just now going to recognize that we're in recession, that means that the bear market's going to be worse than the median post-war, and we're going to go down further. And that's why I think, you may, you may be saying, you know, call BS on me that I'm splitting hairs, but I think semantics right now matter because it's the difference between is this going to be the end of a bear market or is this just a bear market rally? So why is – I get what you're saying. I hear what you're saying and, and I understand that. And obviously there are a lot of securities that have taken the brunt that are um, – of the belief that there is, you know, a significant amount of potential for recession or earnings recession, we'll call it. Uh, bonds, you know, the thing is, you know, bonds backing up to 3%. 3% is still, you know, on a 10-year. It's still not very high, right? I mean, it's not as low as it was. Do we have to get back down to that level? I mean, I would I would be pretty satisfied if we can maintain generally a 3% and, and think that that is something that is – a reasonable level, and the Fed funds, give or take, around this area, you know, a few percent this away or that away, um, for business to actually do okay. Because, I mean, if you were in past situations, you'd be at, I don't know, let's call about a 5% 10-year, and then they start dropping it. Because if we do enter a recession, Powell's going to have to turn tail and go the other way, right? Isn't that the point? I think that that is the concern. If we were to be able to maintain 3%, that would imply that we're not going into recession or, yeah. okay. uh, and, and that would also imply by the way, that the fed would not have to ease that somehow, some way the fed had engineered this Goldilocks scenario of this soft landing and they had found monetary policy to be in the right place. Um, but it, it would also imply that, that rate hikes are over. So that doesn't really work with inflation where it is, mm -hmm. at least on paper. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't think that we've seen the last of the moves in the bond market at the long or the short end of the curve. Right. I still think that, you know, we're looking at, at, at our at bond exposure and first of all, nothing's good, right? I mean, you really can't say that any particular, it, well, on a relative basis, there are things that are better than the other things, right? But generally speaking, you know, bonds with the skew event that happened, the, the, the quickness of the move uh, of rates and the quite a parabolic move that we had. Now, I'm not talking about the last couple of days or the last week. I'm talking about the general swoosh that we saw over the last several months, right? I mean, that that's pretty tough on on fixed income holders. Oh, it's 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 been a bloodbath. I mean, I mean, it's it's you know, people always people always associate the term blood in the streets with the stock market, but there's there's plenty of blood in the streets for for fixed income investors right now. Uh, and you're seeing you know, you're seeing it manifest in so many ways. You're seeing commercial real estate defaults tick up quickly. 
You're seeing investment banks unable to place leveraged buyout loans uh, and, and having to, to, to deeply discount uh, the, the paper just to try and get it off their books if they can. Um, you, you know, you, you're seeing, for God's sake, you're seeing bankruptcies. Uh, so this, there, there's a real human cost to what we've seen. And, and I, I think it's playing out, bizarrely enough, it's playing out first and foremost in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Which I think we all thought was kind of this, this, this area, this enclave of the economy that was, was Teflon populated with these cute unicorns. Yeah, but the problem is with cute unicorns, they felt like, you know, they could just, uh, they, could, they could drink and eat themselves without any kind of repercussions. You know, the fact is that, and I've talked about this many times, this idea that companies would continue to expand on somebody else's dime, not only, not only not making any money or profitability or having a plan, but disregarding the whole idea of ever having to really be profitable, that was their business model. It didn't matter if they were profitable. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, that's when, unbelievable. When when you hear things about you know, about you know, I, I, I was going to uh, sell my car, and I took it to a you know an old fashioned dealership, and they wouldn't give me what I wanted for my trade in. So then I went to Carvana, and they gave me what I wanted plus something. Yeah. <laughs> it's right. like right. It's like so many of the models, Zillow buying thousands and thousands of oh, homes based on some model that's now blowing up, uh, not just in Zillow's face, but clearly a lot of investors are, are about to have their assets handed to them when it comes to residential real estate. But all of these things are kind of predicated on these, it, it's almost like central bankers. They're, they're predicated on these cute models and that th these tech whizzes dream up that, you know, try and test them in the real world and lo and behold, they fail. Right. And they've had no cost They've had no cost discipline the whole time. To your point, none. So I want to let me let me um, I want to kind of do a little bit of in the middle of all this a reverse a, a, a wind back and set up some cred for you because I, I you know we I mentioned all the things about what you did in your book called Fed Up and that you worked with the Fed and at the Fed for nine years and you worked um, with with um, then uh, 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 President Richard Fisher. Um, so now you have Quill Intelligence. I'm going to put all the information on how to get in touch with you and how to get your research on the show notes for episode 772 over on thedisciplinedinvestor.com. But here's what I want to know. How was it working at the Fed or with the Fed officials? It seems like from a lot of people that that, that I know, it's, it, it was a, um, tell me I'm wrong, but a secret handshake club with copious amounts of whiskey and cigars and big secrets with a lot of belly laughs about what they did. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's how it seems. I mean, it, it, it was. Oh. And um, the problem is the secrets weren't very exciting. Um, again, we're talking about, you know, people who, who get paid too much money to continue working on their dissertations for the rest of their careers. And then they retire with this fat pension and they don't ever have to make policy that applies to anything in the real world. And you know, when you're talking, I, I, I would substitute cigars for the executive dining room. And you know, mm -hmm. my favorite anecdote from from Fed Up that always blows people's minds, because I started off on Wall Street, and you know, if if I was in the in the corporate cafeteria, 
for longer than the five minutes it took me to get my lunch and get back to my desk. I was clearly in the wrong industry. And that was kind of how I was raised, you know, on, on a trading floor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I got to the Fed, you know, to see the, the groups of PhDs convene in the elevator bank at 1057 to go down to the executive dining room, which opened at 11. And then they'd kind oh. of wander back in at 1.15 in the afternoon after a two-hour lunch where they would kind of debate each other on their models and what, what paper are you being published in? And I mean, I was horrified at the lack of productivity in this institution, horrified. Um, so, but the secrets really weren't worth keeping, which is why I wrote the book. Well, so, the, the, you know, it, it also seems to me like for some of these officials who are appointed for, there's not much ramifications for bad behavior. As we saw since the last time you were on, we haven't talked about this, that a few people uh, were asked to leave due to, let's just say, trading on, I guess, what amounts to insider information to a degree uh, throughout their careers. How yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, the funny thing about this is, that there's this there's this false perception uh, and and shame on Jay Powell for espousing it, but there's this false perception that that, that the Fed is now serious about maintaining internal controls <laughs> such that these things never happen again. Well, when I had class one security clearance, I had to sign off on documents swearing on a stack of Bibles and and, and providing proof in in the way of paperwork that I was never doing what some of these people were seen to have been doing. It was always against the rules. I, I always thought it was against the rules, too. And I, as a matter of fact, I'll go so far as saying from not being on the inside, I can't, I couldn't even imagine how it was even possible that it was tolerable and something was wrong with the way that this thing was handled, which was, I guess we could say, and we have to agree with this, it was a cover-up. Um, yes. I mean, in, in the sense that, Something was revealed, exposed, uh, bad behavior. Yes, I suppose that was covered up. Or it was hushed. How about was that hushed? It was hushed, but it was also unhushed with, uh, and this, this is all I'll comment on this, but it was unhushed for political reasons as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, during a, a dogfight for the leadership position there. So you know, why was it hushed for as long as it was, and why was the time chosen strategically to unhush. So I'm just, I'm going to leave those little nuggets. Uh, I hear you. What, uh, due to the fact that they have, there really is very little ramifications for policy mistakes. um, What is the chance that now they're wrong? And let me set this up for you. It's not just them. And I, and, and this is nothing new. I've been tracking this, this whole fed obviously, pretty closely for years. And, and, and one of the reasons why I tell people you have to pay attention to the Fed was not and is not because that they are good at what they do or right. It's that they hold the purse strings. And that's totally valid. <laughs> right? That's, that's the only reason I can find. But, but you have to do so. But then you also have to kind of look behind it and say, okay, well, what are they really saying? But they have been wrong consistently, long-term on their ability to forecast, okay? What's the chance that they're wrong now and making a policy mistake by aggressively and almost to a, it's almost spooky that they're so intent 
on telling people about this 50, 75 basis point going to raise rates. And, you know, because they can't back that off because they've backed that off and the whole market gets crazy because they have created it a situation where they're so important, not like it was back when, 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 all the way back, right? Where you didn't know the name of every single person that worked at the Fed. That, and, and it wasn't the, the lunch club speeches and it wasn't the cocktail party discussions that they're invited to at the Yale Club, at the Harvard Club. You know, that's how we get the information now, right? It's this crazy daily spin from non-voting member, voting member, to a point that I'm I'm pretty disgusted with it. But Back to the question. What's the chance that they're wrong now and making a policy mistake? About 100%. <laughs> Tell me more. Look, um, they are, as you said, very aggressively tightening. They're tightening into a recession. Um, they, they've given themselves so few options because they waited too long, partially because there was this massive power struggle going on in the background that, that policy was paralyzed for a long time, it wasn't just the lack of a recog- the lack of recognition that there was something more than transitory going on. There was also a huge power struggle going on in the background, and that was highly problematic. Now they're trying to correct for that by overcorrecting for it by being super aggressive and super fast. Even though they've done a lot more talking than they've done tightening, we have to realize. Remember, they're not even up full up and running to the $95 billion a month run rate for quantitative tightening until Labor Day, effectively. So um, it's they talk a very tough game in terms of what they've delivered. That's less. Um, nonetheless, they have waited too, too long, and now they're going to compound the depth and the length of the recession by tightening into it. And tightening to a war? Tightening into the continuation of a pandemic around the, globally, right? Tightening into a supply chain fiasco that's uh, going supply on. Supply chain situation is, has come unraveled quicker than anybody can say supply chain. It really, really has. When you see trucking rates, when you see wait times at ports, um, when you see delivery times, expected delivery times in some of these Fed regional surveys, they've simply... The, the problem has vanished so abruptly that nobody realizes it. Uh, I know I'm still waiting for a variety of things that I ordered, but that's well, maybe that's, specific. Well, okay, so so backlogs are going to take some time to, to to come through. That said, um, if, if you're looking at future demand, it's just collapsed. Right. And that's why you've seen lumber prices come down so dramatically. Copper yep. is getting, I think copper's down. Like, copper, iron ore, steel, yep. rebar. Nope. So they're making a policy mistake. You say it's a hundred percent. So let's talk about the other side. Well, well, if you were sitting on the throne, Danielle, what would you do? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, first of all, I would, I would try a little, a little bit more humility. Um, I would concede that that the whole balance sheet experiment is a failure uh, wow. and that the Fed really doesn't belong in that business and that they should, as expeditiously as possible, uh, allow for balance sheet runoff. Uh, I, can I can I interject? Now I'm your assistant. You're on the phone. I'm your assistant, okay? Sure. Hey, Danielle, that's a great idea. But you know what? Uh, how about we do maybe one or the other instead of both at the same time? And that's perfectly justifiable. Um, but by the same token, 
let the balance sheet run down and then make a commitment to get the Fed funds rate to 2% and never let it go below that level again, because when it goes below that level, you unleash speculation that eventually comes back and har to harm the economy. So that's what I would do. I would say that there's a new floor. There's a new floor in town. It's called 2%. The zero bound will never be revisited again. And it was a mistake for us to use our balance sheet to try and synthetically create tighter or looser monetary policy. Yeah, especially what they did and how they did it. You know, buying Apple bonds, I don't get it. Oh, well, that was just egregiously, that, 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 that was basically breaking the law. Right. The, the whole thing of how they did what they did with mortgages and it, 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 it's still a head scratcher and, and it's, uh, yeah. Uh, so now, uh, when we talk about inflation, I think this may be a little bit out of order from our flow here, but I was thinking sure. about inflation is always transitory in my opinion. It all depends on the time frame that you're looking at. Have you ever thought about that? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you're talking if you're talking about a lifetime, sure, it's transitory. It's always transitory. I mean, inflation is a transitory. They, they tried to make it three months worth, and that was it, right? And that's all it was. The problem with inflation that a lot of people don't, I think, understand or, or at least absorb is that even if we have right at this exact moment 0% inflation for the next five years, prices are still higher by 8% higher than they were last year. And that is the problem with being at a plateau. And even if the rate of change begins to temper and the year-over-year -year rate comes down glacially slowly, it's problematic because it's because starting points matter and the starting point's very high. So, but if, if, if the Fed doesn't, it won't allow for a deflationary process to happen because they'll panic, right? I mean, you know, all of a sudden we have a, a CPI... Uh, that's a negative, I don't pick a number, 3% year over year, right? They'll panic. Uh, it, it, how, does, how does that look? Well, that would look probably like the opposite of what I just suggested. They would slam rates back to the zero bound again and start to expand the balance sheet again. <sighs> that's, you know, that defines insanity. So basically what you're stating is here's what I do, but in reality, here's what they would do. And, and what they would do is continually make the same mistakes over and over and over and over, never learning from the mistakes. That's true, but I think a lot of it's going to be contingent. In the current episode, because inflation is high, I think that there is an outside chance that the other bubble that nobody talks about bursts, and that's the confidence bubble in central bankers. And I think that's your real risk here is that because of the magnitude of the experiment and because we're not we're not going to have a global recession induced by a pandemic, we're going to have a global recession because the economy is slowing down the old fashioned way. And to the extent that it took fiscal and monetary stimulus together, right? Mm -hmm. This exemplifies the fact that the Fed cannot go alone. So if there's nothing fiscal coming down the pipeline until after the midterm elections, then there's an outside chance that the confidence bubble in central banking itself could burst. I don't know. I feel that I have I have had a loss of confidence in central bankers for so long. I mean, I, I just... Well, you, you have and I have, <laughs> but market has full confidence. Yeah, I think, again, I think also because they have to. 
to a degree. And, you know, and, and that's all the markets are is the confidence. It's a confidence game. I don't mean a confidence game like, uh, um, you know, somebody uh, being, well, to a degree, maybe yes. But it's, it's all about confidence. The higher confidence you have, the more you think that something's going to be good in the future, the more you will put at risk. That's how the standard process works. It is. You know? And the underlying assumption is that if anything goes wrong, the Fed's got your back. Right. But if you remember something back in 2007 through 2009, when all the bubbles were popping and all the banks were all problem, who bailed out? Who bailed out the banks? Who bailed out the individuals? It was the central banks, right? I always said back then, who is going to bail out the central banks? There's no one that, left. That That's my point. Yeah. I mean, the governments, I guess, to a degree, but then they are intertwined to a degree. Very strange. So, so, so this 2% target uh, that we have is this inflation, this random 2% inflationary target that has been around for a while. And then you did, then you did the inflation averaging. Is it, is it possible that that may change to say that, you know, it's okay to have 3% inflation for a while or whatever the number is. Um, I, I, that I really don't know the answer to because it's obvious that they've had to walk back um, the whole average inflation regime that they introduced in Jackson Hole a few years ago because it's effectively failed by blowing up in their face. I don't know that they can go back to it. And I think that that's why they've been so adamant about getting back to 2%. And they continuously repeat this, getting back to 2%. Yeah, right. I mean, it seems like it's going to be a major task to do so. But again, you know, even at two percent with a with a, with a high base to begin with, means that pricing is going to be higher in the future, and that then affects profitability, um, ability to pay for things. There's a lot of things that are lined up there. The the problem we also have is as the Fed has been raising rates, that the U.S. dollar has been rising, and how is that going to impact non-U.S. developed and developing countries. Do you track any of that? I do. And it's interesting because emerging markets really have been outperforming uh, of late. Unbelievable, right? I mean, seriously, resilient. Yes, in incredibly so, because they still have this underlying issue of having to roll over a whole bunch of dollar-denominated debt uh, you know, against a backdrop of weak currencies. So... I, I'm not sure if these are fun flows, if if these are people saying we've got to put our money somewhere. Uh, but I, I wouldn't expect that if there was a global recession in developed markets, that emerging markets would somehow walk away unscathed. The only thing is that, I mean, China being a big part of the developed developing markets uh, is on a different path, it seems, and, and very capable of doing so with regard to their monetary policy. And I think a lot of countries right now are going their own way. And it, you, you can you can name more than one example. And I think that's kind of what's fascinating because, you again, go back to the idea of confidence. Part of holding up the confidence bubble in central bankers, plural, is coordination. And they're not as coordinated as they were in the last crisis. I mean, I think what, you know, you look at things like what, what Japan did. I mean, I've always had very little respect for their whole central banking process. It's, you know, the old idea of debasing their currency in, you know, in a big way, right, in a big way, 
um, and keeping rates and then going negative and then and then buying into directly into the equity markets. It, it, it no longer it, it, there's no there's there's no real free market there as I see it in Japan. Although there's a lot of people saying it's a much better uh, value right now than others. China, on the other hand, uh, seems to again be very supportive in a much different way, much much different way. Um, but then Europe started following Japan in, and then we were getting close, right? Remember there was that talk about, hey, is the U.S. going to go negative rates? And I'm like, oh, God, no, I hope not. And it seems like we all were part of this big experiment uh, that got us to where we are today. Um, and, and I think, you know, when you look at, like, negative rates, do you, what do you, what's your what's your thoughts on that? I mean, was that an effective – is it is – it, was it an effective yeah. – it, it, it is clearly a failed experiment. It looks like – uh, it looks like it's a foot race right now to see whether Europe or the United States is going to be the first to go into recession. And if that's the case, that, that Europe is in recession, Lagarde is certainly no 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 Paul Volcker. And you'll you'll see the, the European Central Bank do a one and done in July and and walk away with two recessions in a row uh, with negative interest rates, never having even begun to forget normalize, not even being able to, to bring interest rates into positive territory. Negative interest rates are a completely failed experiment. And by the way, very difficult to wrap your head around <laughs> conceptually, right? Don't you think? Sure. I mean, if you, <laughs> you plug that into the Black-Scholes model, if you're trying to do an option, <laughs> it doesn't it, work. Uh, the, the whole, it just kind of goes poof. It blows up because it doesn't work. Uh, yeah, the whole thing, I still, I, I understand it totally. I get it. I'm, I get it. I'm like, but, but I'm thinking, how, what, why does they think, what is that? You know, very strange. Like trying to drink water from an upside down cup. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I, I guess I could somehow figure this out, but I don't understand how that works. Um, so the, uh, let me kind of uh, close up on this, on this point. I, I got you for a little extra cause you were late. So, so I get, I get, it's my benefit to this. <laughs> I really enjoy having you on, by the way. And, I, and I'm really happy how well you're doing with your, with your company. I mean, you and I talked offline for a second and we talked about how, how the subscriptions are coming in and people are really enjoying your work. And I'm, and I'm really, 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 because I, listen, I think we, we started this when you first, I think when you first started Quill, right? Talking? What, yeah. I think, yeah. So, it's been that long. That's great. So um, what other things are, what other indicators are you focused in on in terms of maybe the economy, maybe markets? I, I don't know. What What is some of the things that you, your go-tos that you look at regularly? So, you know, I, I try and follow Dr. Lacey Hunt is a, is a mentor of mine. And he, he always, you know, he always says, Danielle, recoveries begin with housing and autos leading the way. Recessions begin with housing and autos leading the way. So those are the two areas that I really focus on and try and get as much real-time information as I possibly can on them to, to track where we are in the cycle. Well, if that's the case, then we're starting to finally, starting to see some of the, well, housing, I guess it depends on the area, right? I mean, uh, and I also think housing is going to be interesting. Just a side note, maybe you can think about this and you don't have to answer it now, but I think the, the, the housing problems are going to be more regionalized right now because we have a different dynamic not that this time is different, but that we have a different dynamic in that there's, even though work at home is important, there's still a lot remote going on where people have the ability to live, work, and be where they want to be. They may want to be where it's sunny. 
maybe where it's very humid, like where you are, maybe where uh, I am, where there's low taxes, like where both of us are, by the way, and good barbecue for you and, you know, good fishing for me. So there's, there's things like that, and they there may be less, maybe, I don't know, I'm just saying maybe less of a problem in certain areas and more of a problem in others, but I, I think I agree with you. We haven't really seen that role. Car prices are still holding up, but again, starting to see that they are um, at least coming down a bit, but nothing tremendous. Housing really not coming down in most areas, right? Uh, house prices, prices are going to be the last to come down, as are auto prices. Right. The um, you know it, it's I, I'm tickled to hear this big blame game to the oil companies for price gouging and what have you, when they've basically been, been told at gunpoint, go ahead and build that refinery. I'm going to, I'm going to shoot it in the head. Um, so, and yet they're the bad guys and nobody's called out the automakers for, for keeping prices really at artificially high levels for as long as they, as they have. And now we're seeing, uh, you know, the, the CFO of Ford has come out and said, well, you know, we're seeing delinquencies tick up. And I'm like, do you think? Because now a car payment's as big as what rent was before the pandemic. Oh, it's unbelievable car payments. I mean, I don't understand how people yep. can afford this. So the prices are coming down very slowly, but it, it is, I think it's, I think it's specious to suggest that because of how weak car sales are, that it has, that it is being driven by a lack of supply. Mm. Get around and drive around. Car lots are filling back up. Zero percent financing is on the rise big time. And that tells you that car companies are starting to feel it. They're starting to feel a lack of demand because, you know, inflation for essentials, food, gasoline and the, the, the roof over your head, that's gobbling up the vast majority of your average U.S. working households disposable income. So. The demand for discretionary, whether it's goods or services, is it's vaporizing. Mm. I mean, it, we sure. follow we follow quirky things at Quill like like Hilton Head Airport traffic because mm. it's one of the most it's one of the most it's a huge leading indicator for travel worldwide, and we've seen passenger traffic there collapse. So if it's discretionary, it's in the crosshairs right now. You know, it's interesting. I just want to say one thing in closing uh, is that. You know, I look back at all the different bailouts over the last decade plus-ish, a couple decades, okay? And every time we come back, and I feel like I get screwed further by the people that were bailed out. You know, look at the restaurants. And, oh, we all felt bad during the, you know, the, during, during the pandemic. And we did our local restaurants you give money to, right? You know what I'm saying, right? Remember that whole thing? And you're, you're tipping like crazy people to the people that are serving or being or, or delivering because, you know, thank God for you. It was like the heroes of our life. And now you go into a restaurant and the price are like, what, what, how, how is this even working? They put mandated 20% tips on things. And it's, it's absolutely absurd. And that's what happened to the car companies, the hotels, the airlines. Look what they did. Look at the pricing on, on, on what's going on there. Now, some of it, you got to say, is justified because they have to pay this one more and that one more. But you know what? My point here is no more bailouts. How about that? Oh, I, look, I, look I, am, I am right there with you. Yeah, right there with bailouts. you. No more bailouts. It's no more bailouts. No more bailouts. Look, it's um, because again, you know, like we we've had we've experienced what you're talking about, and the decisions made almost immediately. If they're going to put a twenty percent tip in 
for just two people to eat, we're not going back. Right. We're not returning. Right. Because you can, during the pandemic, we were the best small town inside of a big city types. We supported all of our local restaurants yep. and did as much takeout as you possibly could right. do. And now we feel like certain uh, certain players are, are taking advantage of the goodwill. I, uh, and yeah. you know what? They're going to lose business. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, tell everybody one more time how to get in touch with you and uh, how to get your, your, your info. Come, come to quillintelligence.com. Uh, come see us online. Follow me on Twitter at Demartino Booth. Um, and and just you know, look, we, we we put out the best research in existence, and I'm I'm not being modest. Wow. There you go. I like it. I like it. I like it. Good stuff. And I agree. So we'll have all the information on this episode notes as well on thedisciplineinvestor.com. Danielle Demartino Booth, always a pleasure spending time with you. And when you're down in Florida, open invitation. I appreciate that. Thanks yeah. much. All right. Thanks. Bye. How great was that interview and discussion? I mean, <laughs> I think we were pretty forthright in terms of our thoughts about what the Fed is going to do and some of the uh, policy mistakes at, I think it looks like 100% probability from what Danielle said right there. Pretty cool stuff. And I know we've been talking about the Fed a lot because there's a lot to understand and, and they're really pulling the, the strings right now. So I think it's important to really focus in on that, but not to its... Uh, to, as the only thing that's going on. Because remember something, like I said earlier today, this is, a, this is a market of stocks that we have to be aware of what's going on with all of them. Listen, get in touch with me if you want a portfolio review. Go over to the, the disciplinedinvestor.com and click the Ask Andrew. Say, hey, Andrew, I want a portfolio review. Send on over to me. We'll check it out what's going on. Listen, you, you could do it alone, but you really can't do it alone if you know what I'm saying. The fact of the matter is, I talked about why you don't get your own haircut, the, uh, the, the objectivity, the, the, the idea that it's a matter of perspective. And I think that right now is a time when a lot of people, you may be like, oh, man, I screwed up. I don't want to show anybody this. Don't worry about it. All we're trying to do is, is, is get you set. That's what I'm here for. You listen, you've been listening to me for a long time. You know what it's all about. There's nothing... That, that's not known. You know how we work and how it, it worked with you. And if you don't, reach out. This is your opportunity. This is one of the best times right now when the market is down like it's down to get the opportunity for the next leg to move forward, where we go and how we get in there and to make sure that you are set. I'll be happy to work with you personally. And we're going to talk, you and I. We're not going to be handed off. You have people behind the scenes working on things, but I talk to my clients. That's what I do. Let's go on to the Ask Andrew section of thedisciplinedinvestor.com. Hey, thanks for joining me. Have a great week. Uh, and I will see you again. Uh, it's going to be July. I think it's going to be July on next time around. See you soon. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition... The information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, 
and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company.